My name is Anthony Capazzoli, and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. No matter how bad it gets, just know that you can and will recover. It takes work. It takes hard work. Each week, we talk in detail about what it takes to make it, what it takes to beat your addictions. I am a recovering addict from alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine. My addiction started in eighth grade. I am now 50. I had over 40 years of very bad habits to break. I hit rock bottom hard. More than once, I nearly died. I would have left my wife and two young children behind. I've been clean and sober for nearly three years. I completely dismantled my entire life and rebuilt it from the ground up. I believe to make it in recovery, it takes a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. It takes a positive mindset. It takes hard work. It takes a village. Join me weekly to learn from my sober superhero guests on the Dismantle Life podcast. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcast. Check me out at dismantle.life. Email me at anthony at dismantle.life anytime. Please be sure to leave a rating and review anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And let me know if you want to be on the show. Happy recovery. The goal of the podcast is to help people find, stay, or get back on the path to sobriety through positive stories of strength and love of the guests. Uh, because it's, I think these kinds of stories are best told or best experienced from people that have been there, done that. Um, this is one of those things that I do believe that a doctor who has never experienced any level of addiction or recovery we just have a hard time understanding what it's like to be in our shoes. Right. Unless they're, you know, unless they work directly with alcoholics. And I don't think they have the same experience that they had, you know, back in the thirties when the men were going into the hospital and being treated, but basically they were being detoxed yeah, and, or, yeah. and or tied up, you know, until they, they were uh, calm enough to be able to, get whatever medical treatment that they needed and clear their head, you know, but, but uh, today I don't think that the medical community does, you're right. I think today the medical community doesn't have the patience or the tolerance for people that are drinking and using drugs. At the end of the day, that's, that's the whole purpose of the show. I always like to start with the beginning. And by that, I mean, Pre-addiction, I like I mentioned, I am not a doctor. I have zero medical experience. I just lived through this myself. And I know that I've got a story before my story that led me into the path of, of addiction. So I'm always curious where people started. Some people have had their first drink at five or six years old, believe it or not. And others uh, have a little bit of a different path. So I'm always curious. Um, perhaps you could share where things kicked off for you. I probably, my parents had... Actually, we used to have backyard parties. My father was uh, in the printers in the union, uh, printers union, and uh, he uh, and we had a pretty good sized backyard, so we would have barbecues and and so forth. And so you know, and there so there was beer kegs and cocktails and things like that. But it was neighbors and family, friends, and people that worked with them, you know. But just generally socialized. So there was probably you know there was probably alcohol around and we probably sipped a beer here and there as kids, but I don't really remember drinking until I was probably 
well, I was probably about 16 or 17. My, at the time, my girlfriend's father had built a bar in his basement, actually he built half a boat in his basement <laughs> to make it as a bar, anyway, <laughs> which was kind of cool. But anyway, you know, so, you know, I'm 16, 17 years old and we could drink in the basement as long as we, you know, if we got drunk, we could just fall asleep on the floor or wherever we were. Right. So, you know, and, uh, but then she went away to nursing school. So I used to go up to Trenton, New Jersey, where she went to school and we used to drink with the girls because, you know, girls were, they were in college. So, you know, it's like, but I, I still wasn't in college yet. I was still in high school. She was a year older than I was. Yeah, I remember getting, you know, drinking garbage stuff, just things that were too sweet and getting awfully sick and stuff like that. You know, it wasn't a daily thing, but I was drinking. It wasn't until I went into service when I was 20 years old, and I was, you know, I wasn't old enough to drink, really. But in Colorado, they had what they called three-two beer, and they had sure. three-two beer bars, where you could go and drink that, <laughs> you know, that, that beer or whatever. And to, uh, you know, to a young person who really didn't drink much, it was like, well, if you drink enough of them, you can get drunk. You know exactly what you're talking about. They just do like low dosage beers. And they right. think that that's kind of the safe way into the drinking establishment, but it really isn't. I mean, right now, but it was just outside of the, you know, just outside of the base. So my, my, Face buddy and I would go over there and hang out and watch films or whatever they were having and have snacks and stuff. And I remember getting pretty buzzed. And I said, you know, it was amazing. And I said, you know, if I could hold this feeling, whatever that feeling was, like euphoria or whatever, for every time I drank, I would do that. So I don't know if I started to search for that. I think in some ways I did. You know, when when's the next real fun high you know but of course you know i went to back the bed you know i went back to base and went to bed and actually ended up throwing up all over myself you know it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i totally get that i mean uh because you're yeah. kind of learning the tempered controls and you only remember the good stuff of that's you know most people um do exactly what you described i mean there's no control you drink until you just can't drink anymore oh, yeah, right you know we were you know i was a teenager i basically i was what he said i was 20 years old so but um, so, you know, and I hadn't been away from my family. I went to Catholic school, grade school and high school. So I was, you know, a good little boy, basically. And, you know, when I was finally freed of my family, I, and not that it was bad or it was actually my family life was pretty good. It's just I just needed freedom. I was a middle I'm a middle child. So everything was expected that I that I was the good kid. <laughs> whatever that was, whatever that is anyway. But um, so it sort of started from there. I mean, it really started to pick up once I was in the service and actually I got married and then I came out. I'm a gay man. I've been a gay man since I was 20, little over 21, about 21 years old. Actually, mm -hmm. I came out. So did you come out while you were married? I came out while I was married and in the service. This wow. is Wow. 1972. Oh, you must have had a rough couple of years, Jeff, I would imagine. <laughs> My goodness. It wasn't really that bad. I didn't, you know, it really, you know, at that time, it's like, yeah, they were, you know, they were still, and they were, they were chasing, guy, you know, they were chasing guys, people out for, you know, for being gay. Yeah. And actually my second 
boyfriend actually was worked at the military, but actually worked at the academy. I was in the Air Force at the Air Force Academy, who was being investigated. Man. Uh, so he was a little scared. He said, you know what, if I told if I told everyone, if I told on everyone that I know who's so-called gay, there wouldn't be anybody left in the place. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I always wonder, not to get sidetracked, but who gives a shit in the military if you're gay or whatever? I don't know why they're so hell-bent on it. I know that things are different today. Yeah. It takes time to get there, but my goodness. I mean, kudos to you for coming out then because I have to say that – for lack of a better way to put it, that takes a lot of balls because talk about flipping your life upside down. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of knew and my, my future, I would call her my future ex-wife. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we had talked about it at, when I was a teenager and I was aware of my, my inclinations, basically my attraction to men, but you know, and, and I, and we said, you know, well, we'll see where it goes. And basically sure. that's what we did. And so when I got to a point where I was actually cheating on her and I was having an affair with someone, I graciously said, I'm, you know, I told her what was going on. I said, I'm leaving you for this guy. Right. And shocking and pissed her off. But I would yeah. imagine so. Yeah. I think, it'd be, you know, anybody getting that news, regardless, I think it's the infidelity layer that would be the most. Yeah. But I mean, I was, you know, I, I I had morals, even though I was drinking, you know, in the sense, but I wasn't drinking that much. You know, I hadn't been drinking that much that I didn't give a crap anymore. You know, right. it's like I was, I was honest with her and I said, this is, this is what I, this is what I think I need to do. And we talked about this and I said, I'm leaving, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and live with this guy. Yeah. And I was still in the service. And so actually, did the, did you know, the service, I was, um, Give you a hard time about this, like meaning. No, I, as I said, I didn't. You know, I was only an enlisted. Well, my second boyfriend was an enlisted man too, but he, he as I said, he worked at the academy, so he had a little more difficult time. So there was a little. That was a little tricky. Yeah. Because people were probably following him around in some sense because he lived with me. We lived together right. in an apartment. So it's like, I don't know. I don't think we had a two bedroom apartment, but we might've, but, sure. so, you know, and that got a little, that, you know, the fact is that he was drinking as well. And because he was scared, even though he's not going to admit it, but uh, so, you know, drinking actually became part of my social life. Being a gay man was being a gay, well, it was still a big thing and was going to bars. I mean, that's where you met people. Right. And, you know, and it was a social lubricant. It was also a lubricant to get laid. You know, if I drank enough, I didn't give a shit. Everybody does that. I mean, the, the drinking for social lubrication and, and to put your guard down, so to speak, to maybe yeah, perhaps yeah. yourself yeah. to make bad right. decisions regardless. Right, right. So it was just kind of like, that's where, that's where it went, you know, basically. Yeah. And um, so were, were, the, were you drinking um, or your boyfriend drinking to... I guess mentally or emotionally deal with the stress of what you're going through as gay men or. With I think he was more than I was. I was just drinking because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. Yeah. You know, as I said, you know, it's going out, we were going out, he worked at the bar, you know, because he was sort of laid off sometimes. And he, uh, 
he worked at the bar. There was only two bars in Colorado, it was in Colorado Springs. There was only two bars in Colorado Springs at that time. So he worked at one and I would go down the road to the other one. And then he would like get jealous and stuff because I was out somewhere else and he couldn't see me. Right. So it was like, <laughs> that was kind of crazy. So that sort of became a little abusive because he would come home and he would be a little tanked from after work and being pissed off because I was out and about doing something else that he couldn't see. And, uh, you know, under the influence of alcohol, things got a little crazy. Life just carried on that way. It's like, I think I went from bar to bar, from man, person, man to man, man to man, you know, relationship to relationship. Actually, I actually came home because the relationship got too, too uncontrolled. And I basically came back to New Jersey because that's where I was from. And I was... I had nothing left. I mean, I was in that relationship and I needed to save my butt. Was it you left be Colorado Springs to come back to New Jersey because there was physical or emotional abuse or both in the relationship? Uh, basically both. Both. In some ways. He, that's what I said. he would come home and he was drunk and he was belligerent. Basically, I, I, in some ways, I had to start an argument or a fight because if I got him overwhelmed, he would have an asthma attack, which would slow him down because right. he was going to try to get violent. Jeez. That's <laughs> got to be rough. So I was like, I called home and said, I need to come home. I need money to come home. And I packed my bags and came home. Yeah. But that's only the first time that that, that happened. Anyway, but – and I just lived that way until I was – my story actually, my recovery actually begins late 30. I was actually 37. And we were drinking every day and drunk six days a week because I, I was pretty much drunk and doing cocaine six, seven days a week. Yeah, I used to say, you know, I don't think I was ever sober at the end. I, I was, I worked in a bar and restaurant and, you know, we all went out, we all went out drinking after work. I, thought so drinking was a sober or, you know, was a, uh, was, you know, was a social thing. So we had parties, we had a nice little apartment and um, a, a yard where we could have, uh, you know, beer parties or whatever. And, um, and that's what we did. And, you know, I actually had gotten arrested. I was, I drove the guy, a bunch of the guys home from work, from the restaurant after we had been partying somewhere, either at the restaurant or down the street at another restaurant. And I, for some reason, I drove people home around the block. And I was coming back to the parking lot at the restaurant. And I got stopped by the police. So I got a DUI the first time for that. Of course, I had drinking. I had gotten arrested several times through the years. I actually totaled a van, a conversion van, because I miss, I you know, I misjudged my my turn into the highway and totally rammed into the abutment or whatever it was and stuff like that. And that was you know sometime earlier. And back in the day, they didn't actually you know it's like they actually told me you know I walked away from the car and I called the police and I called my friend and he he said, well you're in enough trouble already, so we're not going to give you anything, you know. So, but, you know, that was the way things were. But this time I got a DUI. This is in, you know, eight, 86, 87. So that they made me go to driver's 
education and therapy or whatever they call it, you know, whatever they were calling it at that time. And that was probably the first time that someone suggested that maybe I drank too much. Was that news to you? Was it something you were hoping to hear one day to someone to kind of break you free, so to speak, of your own chains? Or were you surprised by that insight? Not yet. It was the second time, actually, when I got arrested for probably public indecency or punk, public drunkenness. I was at the bar down the street and my partner was going to get the car or something. I w- oh, I know what it was. I left there. I left the bar to go to cash or something. I got arrested. I was dr- I was blacked out because I didn't know I was, was arrested until my partner came to pick me up and drive me home. And I was, I was pissed off. I said, what was I doing? I don't know what I was doing. I could have been urinating on the street. I could have been taking off my clothes because that happens when I get drunk. You know, it's like, you know, basically. So I was just, you know, I was pissed off and angry and frustrated. And my partner said to me, something, you have to do something. This isn't working anymore this way. You're not, you know, neither one of us are happy. I mean, he, you know, I basically taught him how to drink properly. I mean, I thought I was, you know, I thought we were, you know, we would go out to dinner and we had wine and, and hors d'oeuvres and cocktails and all kinds of crazy stuff. And he, he taught me how to smoke pot. I wouldn't do drugs, really. I did, I did drugs when people had them. Yeah. But I didn't go search for them. You know, I didn't go, you know, to the wrong side of the tracks to find drugs or even really to pursue them. If somebody had them, they said, you're, you know, want to share, you know, share drugs or whatever or split something or other than that. But right. but he was a pothead. So there was always pot in the house. So I used to say, you know, every morning I made, got up, made coffee and smoked a joint, you know, and then when I went to work at, after by four o'clock and, you know, and then I was drinking by by eight. So that second time of getting arrested for drunken disorderly or whatever it was, that was the time. It, it didn't happen right away. I thought about it and finally I said to something, I, something had to happen. And I had the material from the, the prior time. And then I called and I, you know, I said, is there, a, I think there was a list or, you know, an AA list and, one day I decided to get in the car and go look for an AA meeting. So I realized being arrested for drunken disorderly and not remembering it could absolutely be a rock bottom. I mean, I've talked to many people who've had a very rocky rock bottom. I'm one of those. Mm-hmm. Or a very light rock bottom where they'd, they'd never really, and I'll say, I don't mean truly like I'm judging. I'm saying that they don't hit very hard. It, it's, a, right. it's a very soft. Right. Right, now. right. Finally went in started my recovery and I would hear those stories of all this horror that people lived through. And I'm like, well, I'm not like them. I wasn't like them, you know, and I did, you know, and we hear those stories like, well, I never did that or I never did that. Does that make me an alcoholic? Maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm not. But when I listened to what people were saying and, and in the, in the 12 and 12, the little step book, of Alcoholics Anonymous, they actually say that, you know, you don't have to have the high or the low bottom yeah. drunk that you've lost everything, that you've lost your life, you've lost your, you know, you lost everything. 
But when you've had enough, you've had enough. And I had enough. That's right. I think that the main takeaway is that everyone's story is different. But if you're drinking or doing drugs compulsively, or like you said, you've had enough, whatever that means, the the traits are the important thing. If you're getting up every morning, rolling and smoking a joint with your coffee, and then immediately hitting the bar after work, and that you don't have an option but to do that, then you know that's something to consider. And right. I'm not here to tell anybody what is or isn't alcoholism or a drug addiction. Right, right. That's for everyone to decide. But but I I agree with you. I think that many times people dismiss addiction because it doesn't fit into the criteria of an after school special, which right. is very right. dangerous. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's the stories that we hear, you know. And people still say that today. And as much the literature there is about out there in recovery, the stuff you can look up, and it's like, you know, people think that you know the drunk down the, you know, there's there's a couple that live down the hall from me, and it's like they're, you know, they're in the cups of their their alcoholism, and he smells awful, you know, yeah. and but he's always friendly. You know, he's a friendly drunk down the <laughs> down the hall. But you know, it's like I don't, you know, and I feel sorry for them. And it's like I don't want to feel that way. But try to reach out to them before. But you know, that's the story. As I was saying, I heard what I needed to hear the first time I walked in the meeting. I was late for my first meeting because I didn't know where I was going, and yeah. I didn't know that I was an alcoholic. But they told me that I was, or I might be. And so I examined that. And when I heard that, you know, I don't have to have this low bottom, living in the street, you know, losing all my things, being arrested a thousand times. And even in early recovery, I used to sit there at meetings going, because I didn't really understand the obsession for people who had been sober for a while, who stopped going to, stopped doing the work. You know, they stopped right. going to meetings. They stopped, you know, doing the fellowship. Their life got good again. You know, they, yeah. you know, they got the car back. They got a job back. Their wife came back. The kids all came back. Everybody loves them again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then they, then they go out. It takes one time, one bad decision. You got to keep doing the work. Right. So it's like, oh, well, maybe I could drink again. Or, you know, I'm at a party and somebody's sticking a drink in my hand. And it's like, well, that's, you know, I didn't understand that at first. And I'm like, what the hell's wrong with those people? Are they crazy? Yes, they're, they have the disease of alcohol. They have a disease. They absolutely do. And I, I'm one of those people. I, I know I have to put myself in winning situations. If I have one drink, the, the rest of the dominoes of my life will fall over in a very bad, ugly way. I'll call my drug dealer. I'll go buy cigarettes. I'll get a shit ton of alcohol and I'll go on a fucking bender that'll probably kill me. It would take me a long time, but it took me a while to like, oh, okay, I got it. Now I figured it out. It's like, it's not that I have to do that. I mean, even for a while, I even thought, you know, early in the recovery, I thought, well, because everybody talked about going to rehab. 30 days for three months or nine months or whatever. And I'm like, I didn't do that. I came right off the street because I, what, that's what I said. I, my bottom was fairly high and I didn't really need to detox that way. Of course I've had headaches and I was probably jonesing for sugar or whatever, you know, whatever I needed. I don't really recall at this point, but I kept thinking maybe I need to go to rehab just to see what it's all about. But when I realized I don't really need to do that either. 
I went to deep rehab to interview for jobs because I thought I was going to do a counseling mistake, but that's the only reason I went to, into a rehab, you know, and I, you know, I went to rehabs to speak as well. So the thread here, I think this is consistent for anybody in recovery is you have to continue to do the work. When you start to believe that you're healed for lack of a better way to put it, you then let the lies creep back in and the addiction starts to win the fight. And then the addiction convinces you that you can have another drink or another line of cocaine or whatever the hell it is. Right, right. And you can't, you just cannot. I mean, you, you because you, the other part of it is you'll dive right back into the deep end of the pool, right where you left everything off. Mm-hmm. And you'll go right back to where you were. There is no, at least for the addicts that I know that are in recovery, there is no half steps. It's anyone that tries to believe that or convince themselves of it is wrong. And I and I, I can say that because the other part of it too, the, the other side of the, the equation is you might be around the wrong people again because you're slowly trying to creep back into the addictive life. And you all of a sudden are making tiny little bad choices that you are aware of, but you're not conscious of. And you'll know the difference. And then all of a sudden, somebody tries to pass you a vodka soda or a vodka on the rock, splash of soda with a cigarette in a line of blow, and then I'm off to the fucking races. And I, I stay away from that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and you know, and recovery, being in recovery, and building a fellowship, you know, of people that are supportive of each other is one of the basics of recovery. These people that I hear, and it's kind of hard to tell on Twitter because that's where I mostly do on my online kind of, you know, social media kind of recovery stuff. Say, I'm not sure what their status is of recovery and where 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 they're getting their information. So you had kind of have to kind of pussyfoot around trying to figure out, you know, are they going to, are they doing AA or are they doing some other yeah. recovery? process or they're not doing it and someone even said the other day i was on a call with uh with with harriet liz lizza yeah why is it six she's wonderful yeah, yeah and um the speaker said these are the basics even if you're not doing aa there's always work to do they have a format to follow suggestions to follow this is how you do it and do those steps because those are the things that, that keep us sober. You don't do them perfectly, but we do right. them to the best of our ability at that time, you know, and it's like, but you have to have some kind of emotional psychic change is what Bill W and Dr. And Dr. Bob calls, you know, a spiritual yeah. experience. You know, and that throws people off. Well, I don't know what I, I don't know. The God stuff, like, it's scary to people. And it's like, the God stuff is actually what got me here. You know, it's like, oh, well, I don't know what this God stuff is, but it sounds kind of fun. The way is the way. I, I think people should trust the process, whatever their process is, in a good way. I, you know, one thing you mentioned, I, I have found such joy in the, First of all, I'm not a huge fan of social media, but I have come to enjoy it through sobriety and recovery because of all the wonderful people that I've met that are oh, yeah. in recovery and are so helpful and loving. And I've, every, every single day I go on social media, not because of the show, but because I want to throw some sunshine at people that post that it's their first day in recovery or their 10th day or their, or their 
25th year in recovery, whatever it might be. Sure. And just to give them some love via a Facebook like or a nice comment or a retweet, because that means so much to people. Just that little juice you get emotionally, spiritually from people that are there to support you in a good way. It's wonderful. And that for me is one of my favorite parts of the day. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's a great way to, it, it's sort of my early morning thing that I do because I do, I can do zoom meetings during, you know, later in the day. I have specific ones that, you know, I'm kind of old school. I've been around for a while. So it's like, I still have to go to, I feel like I still have to go to meetings at eight o'clock at night or seven 30 or whatever, Yeah, <laughs> because I'm used to that. That's my routine. So there's, but I have my home group is basically, at 7 a.m. in the morning, Saturday morning, men's group, which took yeah. me a long time to be comfortable with going. As a gay man, I always felt that I was intruding. How so? On, on their space. Because I didn't, wasn't sure that, this is my own hom homophobia, basically, my own fear of being accepted as a gay man in a room full of basically straight men. Sure. But it's been one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had. They don't take any shit from me. They're not going to, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they've been accepting, you know, it's like, but you know, I, I just had to, I had to come to even the, even with the time that I have, I was having difficulties with that and, and when I first started to go there, but I loved the meeting and I loved the sobriety that was there. Yeah. And, and I've found all kinds of support, which is really what I needed because a lot of my past couple of years have been spent alone. I took care of my mother for two and a half years with Alzheimer's and life just came apart and I needed to rebuild some. And, you know, I had to lick my own wounds, basically. I had my I had my recovery, but I was doing a lot of it on my own. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that a lot of us addicts are experiencing now are the struggles of having to do it alone because we're forced to the Zoom meetings. You can't meet people face-to-face -face for – it's really been tough. think that that's a, a common thread for many – Many many of us in recovery, where you're, you feel more isolated than ever. Even though there are, you know, you have the right communities and people are supportive through networks and phone calls and zooms. There's still something about a hug that. Oh does yeah! So oh, much. absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So we got you have to find some safety in that too. But yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, and there's a couple guys that actually there's a couple meetings I go to. It's actually almost the same same bunch of guys that are there and same bunch of people that are there, but there's two guys that actually have gotten sober in the last 90 days. Good for them. You know, through all of this, you know, and they did it strictly on zoom. It's impressive. I mean, you know? it really is. That you know? adds a dimension that many of us never had to deal with or struggle through. Absolutely. You know, but that's the recovery. I mean, that's, you know, that's, you know, th these are people that, that found a way to use social media, if you want to call it that, technology to, to continue to send out, to be of service. That's right. You know, and these podcasts, you know, this is of service. This is a, you do a service. 
you're passing on the message. You're allowing our voices to get out there and do this thing. I appreciate that. And that, that really is the goal of the show is to let people know that they're not alone, that people have struggled and, and overcome in very bad situations oh, yeah. and have made it to sobriety and are winning the fight. And then I do have, you know, the one thing, the, the, the main thing I tell people and forgive my language here when they're like, I just can't do it. I tell them to shut the fuck up and get sober. Like <laughs> I hate to be so blunt, but right. at the end of the day, you have to be committed to your sobriety and make it work. Like you have to do the work. There is no shortcut. There is no right. hack. There right. is no top 10 sheets to do it. It's all crap. You, right. there, you right. just have to do the work. That There is no other way. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is no other way to do it. It's like, I tried. You can't just try. You can't try recovery. Right. It's like, did you try to get drunk? No, you just got drunk. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a well said actually. That's a, actually, Jeff, that's a really good way to put it. Like, did you try to get drunk? No, you just got drunk. I mean, in it, the beginning, you might've tried to get drunk. But. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, I certainly did. I, yeah, I remember it was fuzzy navels when I was in eighth grade. I remember because we, that's what we could get our hands on. Yeah, right. It's it, like, Piper's peach tree schnapps. Oh yeah. It was like, any boon springs. <laughs> Yeah, and all of that, and, and so definitely try to get drunk. In fact, um, but now I tell people that you believe in yourself. There is hope. You can make it. You just have to do the work. You have to be done. You you don't have to hit rock bottom as hard as the but, books, the movies yeah, might. Yeah, it's not that you have to be done. You have to be willing. You have to be willing to be done. You have to say yes. I had yes. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. And my life is unmanageable. I mean, if you don't admit that, if you don't say that out loud to yourself and to other people, you're not going to yeah. do the work. You're going to just keep trying to find find a way. And that's why, basically, that's what I said. When I, in the early days, when I heard those stories, and I'm like, well, I'm not like them. So I had to find, I had to understand where my bottom was. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was, you know, too frustrated in my life, even though I had everything I always thought I had, I wanted, but it wasn't enough. I was missing something in my life. And that was my spirit. I was drowning my spirit, you know, in alcohol and drugs, pot, whatever, and any other kind of distraction I could find. Yeah. I think I had a guest, she, her episode airs this Friday. And she said something that, that I've been thinking about since we recorded a while ago, and her episode airs Friday, but it, um, she said that it's not the addiction that killed her or was killing her. It was the secret of addiction she was keeping, meaning that she never faced her reality. She tried to hide aspects of her life to keep the addiction going. And you can hear it for yourself if you, if oh, you listen sure, to yeah, so yeah. it's, it's It was so crisply put. Because I, I, it dawned on me that I was doing the exact same damn thing. I was hiding who I was through and behind the alcohol and then the drugs and the cigarettes. And that life that I was leading was fake. And that was my secret, you know? And, and then when I gave that up and wanted to let people know that I really had a problem, I was an addict and this is what I was doing for better or for worse. Because that is not an easy conversation to have with your spouse, as, as you know, you've had a very challenging one that you mentioned earlier in the show at a different level. But still, when you come clean, as it were, 
that's it could be the the beginning of the end but at the same time it's the it's it's a very new beginning at the same time so it's a wonderful transitional moment that everyone needs to face because you have to have that first gulp you have to say gulp meaning an air not drink right of, oh boy i'm doing this and then all of a sudden you'll find that that little seed that you planted can grow into a very large powerful oak and it's wonderful right absolutely and you know and you're again we're you're not we're not doing it alone we're there for each other we're there to help you you know absolutely true and that's why we have these meet that's why you have meetings and that's why you have the direction so i mean the 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 foundation of AA, and I think the, most of all of the other programs are probably based on AA in some way, and on this program of AA in some some way or other. How long have you been sober now? I've been sober. My anniversary date is June the ninth, nineteen eighty-seven. Wow. I've been thir- I've been sober thirty-one years. Wow, that is so amazing and impressive. And here's the one thing I'd like to say to the reason that grizzly sober veterans that have 30 plus years under their belt still go to meetings is to continue to do the work, but to give hope to the person who's there for their very first meeting and doesn't have hope. Early recovery, it was like, you know, those old guys were sitting over there on the other side of the room grumbling and whatever, you know. And there was one guy used to say, you know, it's, you know they were still smoking in, in rooms when I first came in. And it's like, you know, he was sitting there smoking. He's got, and he's got his, you know, he's got his canister, his, his oxygen canister alongside of him. Drinking Coca-Cola. And yeah. so just don't drink and go, you know, go to a meeting. You know, that's all you need to fucking do. And it's like, <laughs> and, I, and I used to say, I hope I, my recovery is better than that. And it's like, you know, because in the literature, it does say, you know, your world will change if you change your mind, you know, your attitude towards yeah. life. You know, it's like, if you want to be old and crumbly and miserable, that's your choice. But the choice is, you know, there are promises that we will get better. We will have new... In- ideas and and life will change for us definitely everything changes in a, in a wonderful way because all of a sudden you'll realize that the days are beautifully longer and oh, you'll have more time than you ever thought that you ever had before and the day that you still have 24 hours in the day but it feels like you've got 40 in a day because because you you're able to do things and get things done and remember everything and you're not chasing the drink or the line or whatever the hell it is and Things are great and they get better. And I am so grateful you came on the show to tell me your story because I have had such a wonderful time getting to meet all of my wonderful guests who have been kind enough to tell me their story um, on the show to share with others in, in the line of service. So Jeff, I thank you so much for doing that. Thank you. No, it's great to be here and I hope I sounded halfway well, you sounded great tonight. I mean, I really thought it was a wonderful story, and I was so grateful that you told it. And thank you again. I know that also I'd like to thank you for being so kind and helpful, by the way, to get the word out with or for me on social media. You're always kind enough to comment and repost and sure. retweet things. Yeah. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. you got to pass the message, man. I love it, buddy. You have a wonderful evening, sir. Thank you so very much for being on the show. And I look forward to staying in touch and getting to know you better. 
All right. Great, Anthony. Thank you so much. Have Thanks, a good buddy. Night. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.